this morning, we are going to be entering into a four-part mini-series. So the past six weeks, Pastor Ed was leading us in a six-part mini-series. And before hopping into Advent this year, we're doing a four-part mini-series that look at the parables in Matthew 13. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Matthew 13. And they're a grouping of parables that focus us in on the mysteries of God's kingdom. Now, chapter 13 is a bit of a turning point in Matthew's gospel because Jesus has already, he's already done the Sermon on the Mount, he's done his teachings, and he's entered into healings and, and releasing people from, from demon possession. But now things get a little more tense because just prior to this, in chapter 12, Jesus has some interactions with the Pharisees that point us to an increasing hostility between these two parties. They accuse him of, of healing and, and performing exorcisms by the power of Beelzebul, in other words, the, the prince of demons, which isn't the smartest thing to say when you're face-to-face with the God of Israel among you. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't bite, right? They want a sign from him. They want a sign that he's something more, but they don't actually want that. They just want to catch him in his words. They want to catch him in something that he's doing so that they can get him arrested. They want to get rid of him. But Jesus knows their hearts, and he calls them appropriately a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament, adultery is often actually a symbol for what? Idolatry. The God of Israel is constantly calling out his people, calling them an adulterous generation for their idolatry because they're prioritizing something else over him. Other gods, yes, but really themselves and the control and the power that they want to have within their own Israelite kingdom. So when we get here to chapter 13 then, we see Jesus beginning a series of parables that begin with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, dot, dot, dot. This kingdom is like this. He's highlighting the ways of God's kingdom and what this kingdom is really meant to look like. How does this kingdom work? How does this kingdom intersect with our world? And I thought, you know, for this season and for the, the way that this church is, our churches and all churches are situated within this season, I thought maybe these passages might be helpful reminders to us. So we're going to look first at the first parable in Matthew 13, which is a fairly familiar parable to many of us. We're looking at verses 1 through 9, and then we're, there's a big section in the middle that we, have to, we just don't have time to get into. So we're going we're to bypass that for now, and we'll pick it up at, at verse 18. So... Matthew writes this, starting at verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And then down to verse 18. 
Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed following on, falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the, the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke, it, choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I was in elementary school as a kid, I remember actually taking out a book of the library that was a book of fables, and I had no idea what that was, but I came to find out that a, a book of fables is essentially a grouping of short stories involving a bunch of furry little animals that tells some sort of a moral story. Parables in the ancient world are kind of like that. A lot of Israel's rabbis and prophets would use them. You actually see them all over the, in, in certain places in the Old Testament. They were a fantastic way to get a point across if you wanted to, to, to bring light to something or bring out some sort of truth, or if you wanted to, to compare or contrast or juxtapose certain things against each other. So Jesus is using this ancient form of storytelling to get his messages about the kingdom across, kind of like he's saying, okay, folks, there's some things you need to understand about how this kingdom works. And we'll notice as we go along that he's using very common imagery, things that children could understand, things that the average poor farmer or herdsman would understand. So it tells you something about the main demographic of Jesus' audience. So what's this parable about? Well, based on the context here, knowing that Jesus has just been kind of dueling it out with the Pharisees, with the hard-hearted Pharisees, and that in the middle of this passage, there's a section, we had to skip over this, but there's a section referring to a passage in Isaiah that talks about hearing and understanding. Based on that context, I think it's safe to say that the focus here is on the state of the soil. Okay, we can, we, can, we, we can focus on the sower, we can focus on the seed itself, that matters. But here I think Jesus is trying to draw our attention to the state of the soil, because it's the state of the soil that brings about a particular response to the seed that's sown. As if Jesus is answering the question, what does it look like to appropriately respond to this word? What does it look like to appropriately respond to this seed, to the, to, the, to the kingdom message that is being sown. What does that look like? So we're given four examples of different types of soil. And, and to give you a picture of what this looks like, and I'm, I'm using William Barclay here, in ancient Palestine, when you saw a field, what you would see would be these big, long, narrow strips. And within these strips were, were hard pathways now that was soil, but it was soil that was pressed down so hard because that's where the servants and the farmers and the sowers would all be walking up and down. So no matter how careful a farmer or a sower was, some seeds, as you're tossing them, as you go along, would naturally end up on these pathways. It's still soil, 
but it's become so hardened and beaten down by, by everyone's feet that things just bounce off of it. It's like pavement. It can't embrace, the soil can't consume the seed, so it's just easily snatched away by birds. The moral of that, of course, being, as Jesus outlines for us, is that those whose hearts are so hard, so turned away from the truth, like the Pharisees that we see just in chapter 12, they simply cannot hear a thing. Deaf to the message, they're they're worshiping something else, and they refuse to receive it. Their idolatry just overtakes. They prefer their own wisdom, and the devil just easily comes and snatches the seed right out of them. Now, there were also these areas where you would have a thin layer of good soil, which from the outside looks great, you're throwing seeds at it, but right underneath that thin layer of soil, there would be a layer of limestone rock. And so although it looks promising, the depth would only maybe be a few inches before you would hit that rock. So a seed could get absorbed into it, germinate, and, and grow really quickly because, it's so, because of the heat of the sun, it's so close to the surface. But without any depth, there would be nowhere for the roots to go to find nourishment, to find moisture. It it would just meet a a rocky surface and and eventually starve. Similarly, for those whose hearts are receptive but shallow, they hear the word, and, and I know many of us have seen this, they receive it with excitement and joy and they go and get baptized and they're really excited about this whole Jesus thing because they think it's going to change their lives and now all their, li- their life is going to go really well. But they don't know that actually following Christ means something much different. It means self-denial. And it means that you now enter onto a battleground. Again, they're worshiping something else the good life, perhaps. They have nothing to root themselves in. The the soil's not deep enough. So when life's not turning out as they thought it would, this whole faith thing isn't really doing anything for them. There's no benefits to it. The gospel message isn't fed or nourished. When trouble or fear or, or feeling embarrassed or ashamed about it comes along, the heat and the pressure of life just scorches the truth right out of them. Thorny ground was, was equally, if not more, deceptive. Because as a farmer, you would be walking along and looking in a direction, and, and the soil would seem good enough to throw seeds at it. But underneath the surface were all of these, these roots, roots of pesky, perennial weeds that were just ready to come back up again. So the seed is able to grow for a time, but alongside of all these weeds that are quicker and stronger than it, they strangle the life out of it. For those whose hearts then are receptive and deep, but who are also listening to all of the other voices around and caring way too deeply about worldly concerns, they hear the word, but eventually it just gets throttled by the greater concern, again, on idolatry, a greater concern for for wealth, for the pursuit of happiness, for making a name for themselves, for the three big C's that I call comfort, certainty, and control. Against these things, the gospel does not stand a chance because it's choked by all this other stuff. So, so far in this parable, things don't look really good. When you think about it, this parable is actually really tragic. 
We get so used to it, right? We, we're so accustomed to these stories, we kind of forget, like, this is tragic. If this is indicative of the kingdom, this shows a kingdom that's, that's under pressure and opposition. This isn't something that's easy to receive or to understand. There, there's a fight going on here. There, there's a lot of failure and fair reason for us to lament. Like, what's going on? Is this going to work at all? But thankfully, that's not where Jesus ends it. Thank the Lord, there's hope. Because lastly, we have the good soil, where each, each and every seed planted is able to flourish and produce. And, and usually we're talking maybe 10 times more, but here Jesus says 30, 60, 100 times more what was originally sown. That is a miraculous amount. This soil is able to produce healthy growth that is able to be, to be fruitful, to multiply itself, to send out more seeds. And Jesus here isn't just talking about making more babies. He's talking about producing and generating seeds and sending them out. So what then is the appropriate response to the news of this kingdom? How is this kingdom grown? According to Jesus, it's by hearing, by understanding, and by bearing fruit. In order for us to see this kingdom in movement, we need to be hearers, understanders, and bearers of this word. This is our framework. This is the kingdom reality that Christ is trying to show us here, how his kingdom intersects with this world. This is the reality. Now, we may not always like it, we may question why the sower isn't more careful. What, is there any hope for, for the seeds that fall in the shallow soil? Isn't there such a, th a thing as a weed whacker in, in the kingdom of God? We don't get these answers. This, this is just how it works, and we have to trust that. And, and next week we'll be digging into that a little bit more with the next parable. But, but part of what I'm wanting to do here is to get us thinking kingdom perspective, Right? the bigger picture of what's going on, opening up our imagination so that we don't just see what's immediately in front of us. It's so easy in this kind of a season to just collapse inwards on ourselves because discouragement can just suck the life right out of us. We get so focused in, we don't realize that our peace doesn't come from, from having greater control over our, our tiny little existence, but from seeing the world with kingdom eyes and listening for the kingdom message around us. Because if we are in fact that good soil, if we are in fact that good soil which has received the word and understood it, then the evidence of that is that we are now joining in the work of the sower to produce more seeds and to find good soil in which to plant them. But to do this, to, to hear, understand, and bear witness or be fruitful, a few assumptions need to be made, okay? So look at three of these. First, with regards to hearing, the seed that we have received is the most important thing, the most precious thing in our lives. The seed is the word. 
the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the gospel message that he came to this earth to proclaim. That is the most precious thing to us. Which means that our Sunday morning gatherings cannot be the only way that we are nurturing in our understanding. Deep soil that is able to invite the seed of God to burrow itself in is soil that is nourished first and foremost regularly by God's word. And this is a season where we can all be nourishing ourselves in this discipline, fostering this spiritual discipline of deepening ourselves in scripture, finding nourishment, deepening our roots. It's the only thing with prayer that will keep us from just flying off the rails and being tossed by every gust of wind that this season's gonna throw at us because we will be thrown about, we will be. But on the solid foundation, we need to be standing and that's God's word. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. We need to be deepening ourselves. We have to. Anne Zaki, who has preached here before, she's a, she's a professor of preaching in Cairo, Egypt, and her family is one of the families that we support as a church, but she was recently interviewed by Christianity Today, and after hearing some of the difficulties and the constraints that, that she and other Christians in Egypt face, she was asked this question, so when you live under these constraints, how do you go about sharing the scriptures with others? When you live under such constraints, how do you go about sharing the scriptures with others? And she responded with this. In our classes, in our evangelism classes particularly, it's not about the four spiritual laws. The best evangelism method we use is to be filled with scripture and then to live in such a way that makes people ask about your faith and to have the scripture pour out of you so naturally as if it's your daily speech. To be so, oh, to be so steeped in scripture that it just flows naturally out of you. That's something to aspire to because people will ask you, where does your hope come from? Why aren't you more worried about this? How are you so calm? And you will have an opportunity to plant a seed, even if just a mustard seed. Theologian Adolf Schlatter wrote this, it's a great mystery that the kingdom of heaven is in mortal combat with devil, world, and earthly ambitions, and that in this war, the kingdom has and needs no other weapon than the word of Jesus. That's insane. It's the sword of the spirit, as Ephesians 6 outlines. How effective it is or how much it will do in any situation is never our concern. That's God's business. Our business is to stand under the word. And I'm sorry, if we're not picking up the word of God, don't be surprised if we get swept away by life's worries and concerns. Because the weeds around us will simply be stronger than the voice of the gospel within us that needs to be nourished. Because secondly, with regards to understanding, we need to understand from this word our role in witnessing to this kingdom. Because think about it this way, when, when we send missionaries overseas, the assumption isn't that they're gonna go stand on street corners and create outreach programs. 
For whatever reason, that has tended to be our framework here. But when we send missionaries overseas, the implication is that they're going to study the culture, learn the language, befriend their neighbors, get to know people, build things, build schools and hospitals, and slowly start challenging that society with the truths of the gospel and with biblical justice, while also providing support for the local church. That's our job here. That's what we're called to do here. Our everyday identity is to be missionaries, priests, prophets in this context. You have Christian branded on your forehead, even with a mask on. We have been placed here, called in this season to be a people who bring hope. Because that's what Christ did for us. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father these words, As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then later on, after his death and resurrection, in chapter 20, he says similarly, but now to the disciples, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. His prayer turns into a commission. And John Stott writes this, in both of these statements, Jesus did more than draw a vague parallel between his mission and ours. Deliberately and precisely, he made his mission the model of ours, saying, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Therefore, our understanding of the church's mission must be deduced from our understanding of the Son's. We, as the church, get to share the same vision, mission, and commission of Christ in every season. And you know what? The harvest is plentiful because the rest of the world is actually coming here to do that work. I know it's funny. I had a friend that worked uh, in admissions at Regent for a while, and Regent is the graduate school of theology that both myself and Pastor Ed got our degrees from. She worked in admissions, and she would say that a lot of people from other other countries were writing on their application forms, I want to come here because I want to bring the gospel to Vancouver. We live in a missions field. We together are our own missionary compound that needs to be providing support and encouragement for one another, that's spurring one another on, especially in this kind of a season. So a helpful question to ask might be, where's the one place, where's the one place that you are seeking to make a difference for Christ, even in this season? Just one place, where's the one place that you think there, I can, I can do something? That you're seeking to bring hope, Because thirdly, with regards to bearing fruit, we never know when we might be in a position to join in something that the Holy Spirit is already doing. You could be joining in a conversation that the Holy Spirit is already already having with someone. And sometimes just a few words can be so powerful. It can be so simple. A gesture of love, a kind word, a thoughtful text message. We don't know the impact of the seeds that we sow and the effect that it's going to have. Sometimes it can take years. Sometimes it can take, sometimes we never know. I had a friend, a non-Christian friend, Greg, who I did theater with a number of years ago. He was a stand-up comedian, 
albeit not a very good one, but he was a stand-up comedian. And going to Greg's stand-up comedy shows was a real step of faith for me. This man was the crudest comedian I have ever heard. This man could write a book on the world's most horrible jokes. Honestly, it was terrible. But he would give me the biggest hugs when I would come to his show. I didn't need to be afraid of his F-bombs and his every sexual joke under the sun. I understood brokenness. And I knew that beneath all that facade was a broken man who needed to know that Jesus wasn't afraid of his brokenness. And that there was no place, no context, so unholy that Jesus could not meet him there. I didn't, I didn't think this at the time, but in retrospect, I think my being there said something about the God that I believed in. He ended up taking his own life a, a few years after that. You know, as Christians, we, we really need to be mindful of, of mental health in our society, to be more and more aware of it and to speak into it. But I remember visiting him in the Abbotsford Hospital in the psychiatry unit after his second attempt, and he always bugged me for being, you know, the one Christian friend that he had. He was a staunch atheist. But even there, based on his stories and the, and the things that he would share about the other interactions with the patients in the unit, even there, I knew Jesus was still trying to meet with him. We cannot be afraid of the darkness. We cannot be afraid of seasons of uncertainty. Pope Francis wrote this, there is an urgent need to see once again that faith is a light. And once that flame of faith dies out, all other lights begin to dim. But he says this, the light of faith is unique because it is capable of illuminating every aspect of our human existence. We have a light that remains lit even in the darkest of places. We have a lamp that never runs out of oil. We have a torch that never gets extinguished. And the miracle of this passage, the grace in this text is found in simply this, that that seed was planted in you. That light was planted in you, in each one of us. And now we get to image the one who gave it to us by sowing that that seed and shining that light to others. He doesn't care if we suck at throwing them. He doesn't care if we throw out a seed with a limp or with a, with a broken arm or we walk down the pathway with a limp or, or we feel too fragile or broken or frail to say anything worthwhile. We're not supposed to worry about that. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. We have the privilege of working in the vineyard, working in our Father's vineyard, knowing that there will be fruit, knowing that there's gonna be a harvest. We have that hope, no matter what season we're in. We live and we breathe and we move in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the power of the testimony that's been given to us, that Jesus Christ has granted us freedom from and victory over sin, that the Father now looks at us 
in Christ and deems us worthy of standing with him in ministry. And that his kingdom is breaking into this world. It's not always going to be fair. It's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to make us happy. But in the midst of it all, and at the end of it all, we get King Jesus. See, because everything in this parable ultimately points to the word being sown, which is the king himself. Christ is the divine word. The most important thing in this coming kingdom, the most important thing breaking into this world is the king himself. So this king is with us even now. May we be blessed with the eyes to see him and the ears to hear him. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.